Let me turn over to my more beautiful, better half. I heard a woo, come on. Okay. How's everybody tonight? Good? Oh, good. I think that was Debbie that said that. I heard you all the way up here. All right. Well, we've been having an excellent study on the churches in Revelation, and I so appreciate all of our teachers, and we are just blessed with those that have really um, done a lot of study, and this has been really enjoyable. And so we're going to jump in tonight in Revelation 3 and talk about the church of Sardis. So I'll give you a second if you want to find that in your Bibles, Revelation 3. I'm going to take a little bit different approach. Um, going to be using this scripture, but also referencing some other things in the Bible. So, like I said, a little bit different approach. All right, I think you have it. I'm just going to go ahead and read. It's Revelations 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And let's pray. Father, we come before you in the precious name of Jesus, and in he in whom that we are covered with the blood of the Lamb. God, we are covered with his righteousness, not a righteousness of his own, of our own, Lord. And we just thank you, God. And we ask that you'll teach us tonight, speak to our hearts, let us hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. God, and give us a heart to listen and receive your word. God, I ask that this be your message and your words. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just do just a brief. I'm not going to go in depth about some about the information about the city and the church of Sardis. Um, this was a very ancient city. It had been around for a really long time and had been a very important city over the years. It was located in Asia Minor, about 60 miles away from where Ephesus and Smyrna. And I know some of you have had some maps, so maybe you can find it there on your map. But it had been a very wealthy and prosperous city. Um, it was known as the first place to mint gold coins. And one very um, famous feature is that it housed the Greek temple of Artemis, which is the Greek goddess. It was also the, similar to the Greek, the Roman goddess Diana. But the thing about this temple, it was very renowned. It was very famous. It was one of the the, I think the fourth of the seventh largest Greek temples. So it, it was very prominent, and there was a lot of pride with that temple that went along. And as well as what goes along with wealth and um, the worship of false gods, we have a lot of immorality in that city. So the church there was surrounded by a culture that had a lot of wickedness and evil and greed and, and um, Im immoral actions um, but another thing about this city is it had a unique position. And in times past, can you guys hear me okay? Okay. In times past, um, because of the cliffs and the rivers, the, the city felt like it was invincible. It felt like because of its position that nobody could come in and defeat it. It had that false confidence. And be, actually, twice it was defeated because it rested so securely, kind of like a football team that is playing a, a nobody team, and they go in thinking they got it, and they walk out defeated. That happened to the city of, of Sardis in history 
two times. Um, but the church of Sardis, because we're talking specifically about the church tonight. This was a church, and we don't, I don't know a lot about, about the church, except for in Revelations 3, it tells us that they had a good name. A good name that they were alive. But what did it say? But they were dead. So there had to be something. We have Jesus saying that you have a good a name that is good, that is alive, but you are dead. So I don't know what happened. Perhaps they begin to water down the message because of the culture around them. You know, maybe they wanted to be accepted. They wanted to keep that good name in their community. So they begin to water down things like that. Or maybe immorality had begun to creep into the church and was becoming accepted as the norm inside the church. Maybe it, within the early church, we had a lot of false doctrines beginning to arise. So maybe that was coming into the church and was beginning to blur the truth. But whatever it was, we know the people of the church seemed to be blinded to their own spiritual condition. Just like the ancient city of Sardis had been blinded to its own vulnerability to defeat. So the passage there that I wrote, I'm going to start with Revelations 3, 1 through 3, talking about this church. It says, I'm going to start with verse 1 towards the end. I know your works. The Lord is saying, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And he goes on to talk about how they should strengthen the things that remain, those things that are ready to die, because their works were not found perfect or complete before the Lord, before God. And then he goes on to tell them how they need to hold fast and repent because if they don't, he is going to come upon them as a thief and you will, they will not know what hour they will come upon them. So tonight, I also want us to be, I want to be encouraged by this because I do feel like the Lord was speaking to these churches in Revelation, but there's a message for us as well. You know, our hearts can become complacent. We can feel like we'll never fall. We can drift away from our source of strength. And we can become so busy doing good works, we can come bl- bl- become blinded to our own spiritual condition. They can come be- those good works can become like our covering. We can think that's our righteousness, not Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ. Or we can, looking at our crazy world we're living in, we can become discouraged And then we can say, you know, I can do this. And we can like, what is the saying? We can pull it, we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and say, I'm going to keep going on and I'm going to push through this darkness, but we're doing it in our own strength, not in the strength of the Lord. Whatever, whatever it is here or then, I imagine the people of Sardis did not intentionally drift away from the Lord. They didn't make a decision one day that they were going to go away from the Lord. So there can be warning for us that we have to be aware of where our heart is. Because this was a difficult time, I'm sure, back during the church, just like it is today. You have immorality was on the rise. Wickedness was a normal part of everyday life. And the problem was not that the Christians in the church of Sardis had stopped coming to church. In fact, what did it say about their church? They had a name that they were alive, but the problem was their hearts had drifted away from the Lord. They were going through the motions of church, probably staying really busy with really good things, but their motives for doing those good things had become self-centered and self-glorifying, and they found themselves also content to walk in their own ways instead of the ways of the Lord. Well, this reminds me of someone in the Bible, and it's kind of a popular little story, But this reminds me of Samson. So I'm going to visit Samson a little bit tonight. Samson was also born in a generation like ours, like the church of Sardis. Evil was everywhere. Wickedness was on the rise. And and even the people around them, the people that claimed, the Israelites, they claimed to know the Lord. And they claimed to be his people, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And we can see this in Judges 2, verses 10 through 12. And I don't know if they have the ability to put the scriptures tonight, but um, it's crashing. All right, I'll just read it to you. How about that? Or you can go there because I'm going to move pretty fast through some of these scriptures. And Judges 2, 
10 through 12, it says, when all that generation, and that's the generation of Joshua and those that followed Moses, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from the gods of the people who were all around them. So catch that. That's who they turned to, the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And in Judges 21, 25, it says, In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that, that I imagine, is what the church of Sardis was facing. That's what we're facing a lot here today in our generation. We also know, what else do we know about Samson? He was set apart from his birth. From even his very conception, he was set apart for the Lord, and he had a special calling. And imagine the church of Sardis also had been set apart, someone that the Lord had founded that church to be a light in the darkness in the midst of that immoral city. But let's look at Samson. We see that he had this special calling all the way back in Judges 13, verses 3 through 5. Um, remind us, and I'm going to begin with five. An angel of the Lord came and spoke to Samson's mother, and she said, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall de- begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And going over to verse 24, So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. So you see, even from conception, Samson had been set apart for the Lord with a special calling. And as he grew, once he was grown, he had a good reputation amongst his own people. In fact, he was a judge in Israel, and Judges 15 and 20 says, and he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So he was a leader amongst his people. He had a good name, a good reputation, a lot of things going for him. Well, what about the unbelievers? We have the Philistines. They definitely respected Samson. He had a, he had a good name among them. I don't know if I would call it good, but he definitely was feared among the Philistines and known for his strength. So, um, and imagine the church of Sardis. The Lord said that you have a name that you are alive. So imagine even like the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, these churches that we've been studying, they had a good name for doing many great things for the Lord and being set apart and called by him. But... Just like the church of Sardis, we're going to look at Samson's works because they also were not perfect. And another way of saying that, the Lord said to the church of Sardis, your works have not been found perfect. They are not complete before me. And Samson's works were not complete. They were not perfect. In Judges 14, verse 1, we see that Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, the daughters of the Philistines. So we went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. We see a very proud and entitled heart there. Uh, A heart that had been, a person that had been given so many things in life, so many gifts to be used for the Lord, but who was he concerned about using them for? Get her for me. He was saying this to his father, a man that was to be respected. Instead, he was treating him like, go do this thing for me. Even though it's against what the Lord said, that I'm not to marry outside of my people, that doesn't matter. I want her. She pleases me. Go get her for me. So you see his works were not perfect before the Lord. And then in Judges 16, and let me just tell you that that marriage 
that situation ended very badly. And we'll, I'll touch on that here in just a minute. Judges 16 and 1 tells us, Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. So you can see this lifestyle of compromise before the Lord. And then over in verse 4, it says, Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. And we're probably all familiar with the story of Delilah. Um, But that shows where Samson was. His heart, he was set as a leader. He was given a place of prominence. He was given gifts and talents for what? To to serve his, the Lord his God and to deliver his people. But again and again and again, he used it for his, his own purposes and his own satisfaction. And he used even those talents. The Lord said he will begin to deliver the Israelites out of the hands of the Philistines. And he did that. He did. And we see um, in Judges 15, after the situation with his wife ended very badly, We have Samson in verse 7 saying to the Philistines, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked him hip and thigh, which means very ruthlessly, with a great slaughter, and then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Yes, the Philistines were delivered in this situation. But did Samson do it because he was called of the Lord to deliver his people, or was he out to get revenge? for himself, for the way the Philistines treated him. So you can see, you wonder, did the church, the people of the church of Sardis, they had been doing these good works. They had been called by the Lord to do these good works. But did they start maybe to glory in themselves? Did they start to enjoy that attention that it gave? Or did they drift so from the Lord that they felt that that was their covering, that was their righteousness, and they could continue on walking as long as they were going to church and doing these good things? works, they were good before the Lord, and they would not fall. I don't know what was in the hearts, but I wonder if it was similar to Samson's situation. Samson was so full of himself that he was blinded to his own spiritual condition, and I wonder if that is where the church of Sardis found themselves. Samson, what did he need? He lived in a wicked generation. He lived in a hard time to live. There was immorality around him, all around him. And he was given such strength, so many gifts. But what did he need? He needed to cling to his God. He needed to cry out to him and say, Lord, help me to be the man that you have called me to be. Help me to overcome this generation around me and not fall into temptation and fall into sin and use my my strengths and and probably was a very handsome, very built man to to attract women that I should have nothing to do with. He needed to cry out like David did. In Psalms 139, 23 and 24, beautiful scriptures. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The Lord also was admonishing the church of Sardis in verse 2 of Revelation 3. Be watchful, he told the church. What does that mean? Be watchful, be aware, and strengthen the things that remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. So the Lord was giving that warning. He was admonishing, please examine your hearts. Let your heart be transparent before the Lord that that he can show you that wickedness or anything that is displeasing to the Lord. But instead, they relied on their own strength and their own reputation to carry them. Another thing about Samson, when destruction finally did come upon him, what was he doing? He was sleeping. And it came upon him suddenly like a thief. And he didn't even know the hour that it was to come. In Judges 16, 18 through 21, we see, we see this story. We have Delilah. Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart. She sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in her hand. And in verse 19, Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees. If we don't be careful, we can be lulled to sleep by this world and the cares of this world. 
The enemy will leave us alone and let us do all our good works as we fall asleep and are not aware of our heart's condition before the Lord. So she lulled him to sleep on her knees and she called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. Destruction came upon Samson when he least expected it because he had drifted so far in the Lord. He had walked so long in his own strength. He did not see it coming. Samson had false confidence. And like I talked about the city of Sardis in the past that never thought that they could be defeated from their enemies, they too had felt invulnerable. And the church of Sardis apparently suffered from this same condition. It had a good name, and it was just going to coast on this good name. It felt like it could never fall. But the Lord gave it a stern warning in Revelations 3. He said, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. The church of Sardis was falling asleep. It was dying spiritually, but it was unaware of the seriousness of its own condition, just like Samson was unaware how close that he was to destruction. The church of Sardis were relying on their own strength. They were not walking closely with the Lord. They'd become like a whitewashed tomb, beautiful, gleaming on the outside, had the appearance of being alive, but on the outside, death and decay. They needed to hold fast to the Lord and repent, just like the Lord was calling them to in Revelation 3. But we're not going to stop there. Thank goodness there's some hope for the church of Sardis. In Revelations 3, 4, and 5, it says, You have a few names, and even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So there were some in Sardis that had remained faithful to the Lord. Did you hear all the blessings that would come to them? Their name would not be blotted out from the book of life. They would be confessed he would, the Lord Jesus would confess their name before his father and before his angels, and they would walk with him in white. And, they, and he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. You know, I was reading in some commentaries, and to give credit where credit's due, I don't know if you've ever read David Guzik, but I really like a lot of the things that he says. And he was talking about the difference. He said, you have this majority in the church of Sardis, this dead majority, and their works were not perfect. The work, they had a good reputation, but then you had a few names over here. And they, they walked with the Lord, and they pleased the Lord. But what was the difference? Purity. Because closeness, because they said he would, they would walk with him. Walking with Jesus always is associated with closeness, and that's always related to purity. They had not defiled their garments. That's how he said there were a few in Sardis who had not defiled their garments. They were walking in purity. But you had this deadness and this spiritual facade that most of the Christians in Sardis were living in, and it was related to impurity, to their impure lives. They had apparently begun to embrace the sin of the world around them. Now, this was interesting. It's hard to say if the deadness that Christ spoke about came first before the impurity or the impurity came and then the deadness followed. But whatever it was, they were closely related. Jude warns us that these types of things are going to happen in the last days. It says that in Jude's 17 through 21. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. 
These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Let's talk a little bit more about those garments of white, those garments of purity. I'm not going to go there tonight, but in Matthew 22, there's a parable that Christ told about the wedding feast. And they had to go, and they brought all these people in, and they were clothed in wedding garments. But there was one found among them that were not clothed with the garments, and he was cast out. So this is very, very important to be clothed in our wedding garments. And I wonder... Because you, you see even Adam and Eve back in Genesis trying to clothe themselves with fig leaves. And, and the Lord cl- sacrificed, had the animal skins and clothed them. So many times we try to clothe ourselves in our own righteousness. And it seemed like the church of Sardis was trying to cover themselves with their own garments of good works. But we must be dependent on him to cover us with his garment of righteousness that's purchased with his own blood. And 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And there's two more scriptures there that I'm just going to go on um, by. But because I want to talk about the garments that Jesus gives us are always white. Sardis was a church that was dead, most likely due to sinful compromise. They had defiled their garments. They needed to receive and walk in the white garment that Jesus gives. And John warns us about his in, in 1 John, about walking like we're in the light, but our, but our actions don't show that. He says in verse 6 of 1 John chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we need to walk with him in white, but also walking with him. What a blessing to walk with the Lord. The the. People, the Christians in Sardis that were walking in purity and walking, they had not defiled, they had not compromised with the world, they had not blurred the truth, but they were doing that because they were walking with him. Just like Enoch, way back in Genesis chapter 5, had it was a picture of close fellowship and friendship. And it said, Enoch, who walked with God and was not, for God took him. God took him on up to heaven because of that close relationship with him. The greatest reward that Jesus can give his followers is to walk with him and to walk with him in white. But the Christians in Sardis had forsaken this. They had forsaken that walk with Christ to compromise with the world. They gave up that reward of an intimate walk with him. But walking with the Lord. This reminds me of someone else in the Bible. So we'll leave Samson for a moment. Let's go over and talk about Elijah. Because he too, like Samson, lived in a very wicked generation. Immorality was everywhere. This was the time of Jezebel and, and, and Ahab. And King Ahab was supposed to be leading the Israelites into worship of God, of, of the Lord. But instead, his wife, a worshiper of Baal, came in, and he allowed her to set up temples for Baal, and and they would feed all the prophets of Baal at their table. So just incredible wickedness becoming the norm around people in Elijah's time. And because of that, the Lord was bringing on a drought, and he had Elijah go in 1 Kings 17 and go tell the people, or go tell Ahab, that there would be no dew nor rain these years, except at his word. And that happened, and we, ha- we see the Lord taking care of Elijah. Elijah, um, because the drought would have affected him. It would have been a hard time for him too. So the Lord told him to go by a brook, and he provided water from the brook, and ravens came and brought him food. And he stayed there until the brook dried up. And then the Lord sent him 
even farther, further away from the people that he, he would have known, to a widow lady in the land of Sidon. And she cared for him for the remainder of that three and a half years of drought. But then the Lord sent him back to present himself to King Ahab. And that was in 1 Kings 18, 1 through 4. And it said, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was, and listen to this, why Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. But Elijah felt like he was all alone. He had been removed for these three and a half years. It had been hard years, perhaps discouragement. Now he was going to go back and present himself before a wicked king with this proclamation, but the prophets had been massacred, the prophets of the Lord. And he became discouraged because we see this in 1 Kings 19 because the story that I left out, do you remember how um, Elijah built the altar and you had the, the prophets of Baal danced around their altar trying to have the Lord send fire down, or, or Baal, excuse me, send fire down, and it never happened. And then Elijah prayed. He built his altar, prayed. He He soaked it with precious water for the time. And the Lord sent down his fire and he consumed the sacrifice, the the wood, the rocks, and all the water. And just amazed. And the people said, oh, the Lord God, he is God. And they killed the prophets of Baal. So a great victory. So perhaps Elijah's like, yes, the country's going to turn. And he went and presented himself before Ahab and told him it was going to rain, you know, the, the cloud the size of a man's hand. And he had a spiritual run. <laughs> he ran, he outrun, ran Ahab's chariot for about 14 miles, but got back. And when Ahab told Jezebel what he had done, this was the words he was given. So in 1 King 19, verse 2, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me. And more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And then, and when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. Now, this is Elijah. And he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he went himself, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. So there he lay in the wilderness, discouraged, just had a great spiritual battle, victory. But there he was, discouraged, defeated, probably exhausted from that supernatural spiritual run. Maybe he thought the whole nation would turn to the Lord, but he didn't see that. Instead, he was afraid. But the Lord replenished him. He brought, um, he, he gave him some food. He gave him some drink. Twice he made him eat. And then he got up and he went on a, a journey about 80 more miles into the wilderness. And picking up in verse 9, so there Elijah went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, 
he wrapped himself in his mantle and went outside and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice to him came and said, and I'm going to stop there, because I want you to notice a difference. We've talked about Samson, comparing him with those in the church of Sardis that had not remained faithful, that their works were not perfect, they were dying spiritually. But we also see Elijah, and they both lived in very hard times. But what was the difference? Elijah, even in his discouragement, even when he let his fears get the best of him, in his hard times and his weakness, where did he turn for his strength? He cried out to the Lord. He listened for his voice. Even when he lay there ready to die, who was he talking to? He was talking to the Lord. When he had to wait for the earthquake to pass and the strong wind, he stood and he waited until he knew it was the voice of the Lord that spoke to him. And he listened. Was he discouraged? Yes. Was he ready to die? Yes. But you know, the Lord gave a warning to the church of Sardis that you have things that are, are, are dead. And he said, strengthen Hold fast and repent. Strengthen the things that remain. Well, Elijah just had, he felt like he was dying. That he just had a little bit. But who came and strengthened that which remained? The Lord came to Elijah, gave him food, gave him drink because he was depending on him. He was honest before the Lord. He wasn't like Samson that tried to cover himself up with his strength and his might. He just laid there vulnerable before the Lord and said, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. But the Lord came and revived him. The Lord strengthened that which remained. And so that's the difference. When we live in a hard generation, when we are discouraged, When all around us seems like chaos, let's be like Elijah and just be vulnerable before the Lord and cry and say, Lord, I don't have much left, but will you strengthen what remains? Or we can be like Samson and say, I got this. I'm going to keep doing great things and I'm going to sail through it. And one day destruction is going to come because we can't do it in our own strength. We can't do the Lord's calling in our own strength. We have to rely on him. So dependence on the Lord makes all the generation. All, sorry. Dependence on the Lord makes all the difference. It's not dependent on the evil generation. Whether the people in this culture around you are serving the Lord or not serving the Lord. It's not whether truth is being blurred or are taught. It's about depending on the Lord to strengthen us and help us to go forward. So let's read the very last verse there. Revelations 3 and 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this has been in every letter so far and will be in every letter that we learn about in Revelations. But that is not on accident. This only shows the importance. And I want to relate this back to Proverbs chapter 1. So I'm in Proverbs 1, verses 20 through 23. It says, Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Proverbs chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 has a similar cry. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. Notice where wisdom is crying out. Wisdom is crying out in the noisy streets, 
in the marketplace, in the gates of the city where lots of activity is going on, at the crossroads, at those points of decision. All of these places are noisy. They can be chaotic. But guess what? Who's always crying out in the midst of the chaos? What is the still, small voice that is faithful to be there even in the midst of the chaos around us? Wisdom is crying out. The Spirit of the Lord will speak to us. We just have to have a heart that will hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He is faithful to cry out. In fact, he doesn't wait for the quiet. It's in the chaos we still can hear his voice crying out for us to listen. So we, like the church of Sardis, like Samson's generation, like Elijah's, we too live in a generation where immorality is being accepted as the norm, even in our churches. Life does seem chaotic, out of control, discouraging, overwhelming. We can find ourselves in the midst of trials, hard times, dry seasons, just like Elijah, or Samson, in a generation who does not know the Lord, where everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Everyone defines truth for themselves. There's no standard. But wisdom cries out to us. The Lord is faithful to speak to us, even in the chaos. But my question is, are we listening? Are we like Elijah, quieting down enough to hear the voice of the Lord? Are we like Samson in the church of Sardis? Let's just do more good works. Let's just keep on working and living for ourselves and for our own pleasures. Are we like Samson in the church of Sardis that we're depending on our own strength? Perhaps we're coasting on the reputation of our church or the faith of our parents or the faith of our grandparents or even the faith of ten year, our own faith of 10 years ago. Are we allowing our culture to influence our view of truth and define truth for us? Are we compromising with sin on any level and and justifying it? Are we trying to clothe ourselves with good works instead of allowing us to depend on the Lord for our righteousness? Are we slowly dying spiritually while believing we are at the height of our strength? In Revelation 3, the Lord, when he was talking to the faithful of Sardis, he talked about to be overcomers. In verse 5, he said, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And what promises and blessings are listed there? But to overcome, it says, he who overcomes will be clothed in white. Well, how do we overcome? In John 16 and 33, it says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I, Jesus, I have overcome the world. That's why we can be overcomers. In 1 John 4 and 4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We can overcome because Christ has overcome. Christ is greater than the things that we face in this world. In 1 John 5 and 4, it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. In Mark 13 and 13, we're not left without warning. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end, he who overcomes, shall be saved. In James 1 and 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So, it's a choice. The church of Sardis had been given a warning. Did they listen? I don't know. I know that the church survived many years after that, but I don't know. I wasn't there to witness their choice, but we have a choice. So let us listen 
to wisdom calling out to us in the noisy streets, in the marketplaces, in the crossroads, in the gates of the city, in the midst of the chaos. Let us hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And like Elijah, let us let the Lord strengthen what remains. Let us let the Lord revive us. Hosea 6, 1 through 3, and I'm coming to a close, says, Come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. In Isaiah 57, 15, we have a similar encouragement. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. So let us examine and search our ways and let us return to the Lord as Lamentations 3 and 40 says, because the message too is for us, for this church, Revelation 3 and 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you are faithful to cry out in the chaos. God, no matter what we face in this generation, God, your voice is steady. Your voice is faithful. God, no matter how discouraged we become, you have the ability to revive us, to renew us, to strengthen that which remains. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you will visit each one and every one of us tonight. And if we are discouraged, if we are compromising, God, if there's anything in our lives that is not pleasing to you, God, we surrender that to you and we ask that you will come in like you did with Elijah, and strengthen that which remains. So we too can get up and fulfill the calling in your strength that you have called us to. God, thank you. Let us hold fast to you and walk with you. For you will clothe us in in white in your righteousness. Let us not be found with our own righteousness of good works. God, let us be found clothed by the blood of the Lamb. God, we just thank you. We thank you for the faithfulness of every word and ask that you will give us a heart to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In Jesus' name, amen. Great word. Praise the Lord. Um, Remind you that we are having Sunday night service uh, this coming Sunday night. It's going to be a great time. Be aware uh, of of that. Jordan Amburn, many of you remember Jordan Amburn, will be... Uh, sharing in, in music and word. Um, Brother McGarity will be preaching Sunday morning. Uh, remember your, uh, your pastor heading out Saturday to Honduras. And so um, keep me in your prayers. Uh, I'll be preaching Sunday morning, Sunday night, and we'll be uh, co-leading a, a leaders conference on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then preaching a youth event on Thursday, and uh, we'll be doing a lot of meetings with the school and clinic, and got one meeting with the National Overseer of Honduras. Just a busy week, and ask for your prayers and wisdom, that God will give me wisdom for direction, and and uh, so sure appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for your dedication to the kingdom of God, for your dedication to our local congregation. You guys are amazing. And we sure do love you. I love you. And thank you so much, guys. Is there any other any other thing that's going on this week that I might be missing? I don't want to. Is next Wednesday night when we um, split off? So 
um, men's ministries and women's ministries will uh, be getting together next Wednesday night. We'll have worship together, and then we will uh, split off. Uh, so that's the the last sun, last Wednesday of every month. Is that's what we do. So if you'll be reminded of that, um, there are a lot of people who are uh, having procedures this week and the beginning of next week, and a lot of biopsies and diagnosis, and I'm just believing for miracles, amen, I'm believing for good reports, and so just keep on believing with me for that, amen, yes ma'am, yeah, there's there's like five surgeries going on this week, and John Davis is one of them on Friday, there's another one. Two today. Um, Brad Holbrook is also having an outpatient surgery Friday. There's Kathy Lozier as well. Um, Dorothy's got moved back. Dorothy Giles was supposed to have one today. It's, it's been moved. Uh, Pat Godsey um, is having test run Monday as well as, and that's, that's when. Uh, Kathy Lozier's is on Monday. Uh, and then Barbara Taylor had a biopsy today. Um, whole lot going on, peoples. Whole lot going on. So just remember all of those specific needs. Uh, we know that God can intervene and he can do the miraculous. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Que Dios le bendiga. God bless you. Nos... Nos guardia, may he guard us. Amen. Nos guía también, as well as may he lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. One more thing. Oh, I knew I was missing something. Friday night is game night. I guess I should look at the bulletin right here. Uh, yes, so game night is this uh, Friday night, 6.30, right here in the commons. Miss, um, I know there's two Megans that are pregnant, and so... Uh, the, the first one is due earlier, and uh, so the baby shower for Megan Spillers, uh, her family's putting that on. That is uh, September the 24th. You guys are welcome to the, go to that. That is at Southern Grace Manor. The other Megan is a, is a Mosier, and I'm not sure when she's due. But anyway, God bless you guys.